the new Omicron variant doesn't fit the model of evolution off of the existing variants. There's something very odd. It is highly mutated in the specific region that the vaccines are targeting, and yet it has no obvious immediate predecessors in other circulating viruses. We just don't know what's going on here. There's a variety of hypotheses. Could be that it had bounced into animals and then back, but that kind of doesn't make sense why it would be so evolved for the human vaccines. There is a school of thought and credible, you know, solid uh, mutation chaser uh, vaccinologists that assert that this has the hallmarks of a genetically engineered um, virus. And what you have are all of the variants and their relationships as deduced by their sequence, sequence differences. Mm-hmm. And what you saw is that Omicron pops up uh, without any history of connection to the rest of the swarm uh, as if it came about somewhere March through September of 2020. 2020? Yes. So it's, you know, no, it shows up in 2021. But the point is its relationship, it is as if it has been frozen in time. Uh, at a much earlier state and then oh. shows up. Now, the thing is, this has people over in Lab Leak world fascinated. Um, and there are other anomalies too, like uh, things like the, um, the non-synonymous to synonymous mutation rate is way off of normal. Um, it's like 25 to 1. So this is about how many alterations that have no consequence for uh, actual protein sequence you would expect for everyone that has an actual consequence. And the number appears impossible through a normal process. Joining us right now, and I have to say I'm incredibly excited about this guest, I think perhaps more so than any other guest that I've had so far on the broadcast this year, I think he's he's incredibly well known. And if you are unfamiliar with him, just to inform you, Dr. Robert Malone, he's a global clinical research scholar and the original inventor of the mRNA vaccine platform that is used in Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. He's spoken uh, quite a lot about this. He's written quite a lot about this, and he joins us now via Skype. Dr. Malone, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Dana, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you and your audience. Of course, of course. So to, to start off with, I, I, I mean, I know that I, I I'll, well, I'll, I'll ask a question related to this audio soundbite, and then I want to go into some of the with mRNA and then the whole idea, the phrase, the pandemic of the unvaccinated. And we'll talk about some of these mutations because I watched a fascinating discussion that you had had a little bit ago on that issue. But as it relates to Dr. Anthony Fauci, and he's he's very he's used as you know, he is the common source that we see on television most often about this from our government. What what is your thought on his position as it relates to these mandates and boosters. I think Israel's not going into booster number four. We're at booster number three, I believe. And I, I wanted to kind of get your just top line thought on that. So uh, Tony has once again flip-flopped and contradicted himself. There are multiple prior 
clips where he says we'll never do this. Also, the uh, spokesperson for the Bush administration likewise saying we would never do this. Um, we would respect people's autonomy. There's also clips uh, from Nancy Pelosi saying that they'd never do this. And here we are. Yeah. Uh, this, this is absolutely not legal. They have gone lawless. These are unlicensed vaccines. And it is absolutely contrary to the Nuremberg Code and the common role that's in federal law. Mm-hmm. They, they are mandating, and the most obscene thing is they're mandating jabs for children now. Yeah, the jabs for children. I think that there was something else that came out about that just this afternoon uh, as it relates to those boosters. We're talking to Dr. Robert Malone, who's the original inventor of the mRNA vaccine platform. What, so explain to us what is the difference between the original traditional vaccines as we know it that use, you know, either a dead or inactive portion of a you know, particular a particular virus that, you know, that we use to kind of spark our immune system and the the mRNA uh, uh, technology. Explain to us a little bit the difference between this, because there's, of course, you know, people talk, and it, I don't think that the we haven't heard a lot from the administration. I kind of miss the task force briefings. So, Jaina, we're we're in a tight environment in terms of our airtime here, so I'm going to be brief. The bottom line is that all three of these vaccines available in the United States are gene therapy applied for vaccination. The adenovirus is one technology and the two mRNAs are another technology. They have differences and similarities. In all of them, they involve putting genetic material into your cells and causing your cells to make the proteins as opposed to injecting the proteins. And one of the problems is the government did not force the vaccine companies to characterize where this material goes. We now know that it spreads all over your body. It doesn't stay put, which is what they originally advertised. But there's a whole lot of things that they've said about the nature of these these materials and their mechanism. It just turns out to be either uh, false, flat out false, or they didn't have the data to support their statements. And in the beginning, you've been very forthright in that. Well, of course, you know, if you protect those people that have comorbidities, protect the elderly, you know, protect the individuals who may be at risk, but mass vaccinations, mass injections. And I watched a a very fascinating conversation that you had recently. And the thought was that mass vaccinations, is this, is this why we are seeing the number of mutations as quickly as we are seeing them? Are these mutations coming up quickly in your opinion? And, And what do you attribute that to? Because we hear from the government that it's the pandemic of the unvaccinated and you, I heard it from lawmakers that it's the unvaccinated that are causing the mutations. What is your, I mean, you, you have the science to behind you. What is your response? That's absolutely absurd. It goes against the fundamentals of Darwinian evolution by natural selection. I always like to cite people um, that have been uh, the leaders in recognizing these things. And Dr. Gert Gundenbosch is is a friend and former colleague at Solvay. I think gets the nod for being the world leader that has spoken out against this early on. So the truth is that many of these genetic selected escape mutants or super viruses or whatever you want to call them in the sense of super bugs that evolve when you're take, when you're administering too many antibiotics it's quite clear that many of these mutations are being driven by the evolutionary selection imposed by the vaccines not because of the unvaccinated here's the problem dana the new omicron variant 
doesn't fit the model of evolution off of the existing variants. There's something very odd. It is highly mutated in the specific region that the vaccines are targeting, and yet it has no obvious immediate predecessors in other circulating viruses. We just don't know what's going on here. There's a variety of hypotheses. Could be that it had bounced into animals and then back, but that kind of doesn't make sense why it would be so evolved for the human vaccines. There is a school of thought and credible, you know, solid uh, mutation chaser uh, vaccinologists that assert that this has the hallmarks of a genetically engineered um, virus. Ooh. And and we're talking with Dr. Robert Malone, who was the original inventor of the mRNA vaccine uh, with Harvard, uh, Harvard Medical School fellow, global clinical research scholar. And he's talking with us about these mutations that we've been seeing. And, and that that would explain, I mean, because there's it. I, I've seen enough doctors and I think Dr. Angelique Kutizi in South Africa saying it's it's very odd because the symptoms are incredibly uh, it's that's very mild and the symptoms are a little bit unusual when compared to previous variants. And that 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 stayed with me, her remarks on that. And I don't think that there was enough attention to it. Um, one of the questions that I have seen so often asked as it relates to you is you invented mRNA, you invented mRNA technology. You were a part of that. Why undermine its use? And that is what I've seen in pieces ranging from the Atlantic all the way on down the alphabet of media. And I, I, was, I thought that was very interesting, and I wanted to get your response to that. So it's important to recognize that the Atlantic attack piece, which is full of internal contradictions, mm-hmm. very poorly written as a journalistic piece, um, was put out in a rush uh, by a relatively inexperienced author that usually writes uh, for the Chronicle of Higher Education. And uh, Atlantic is owned by uh, the Gates Foundation and uh, by um, Steve Jobs' widow. And uh, these pieces are funded by the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and others, these attack pieces. And that particular piece came out about a week and a half after Um, Peter Navarro and I put out our Washington Times op-ed advocating for a different policy about vaccination, which is right to your point. We advocated for a vaccine for the elderly and not for those that are at high risk, among other things. And this was a reaction hit piece trying to take me out because I was starting to interact in the political sphere and criticize current administration policy. Now, um, in terms of why am I doing this? Uh, personally, I find what has gone on here to be offensive, deeply offensive. And, and one way to put it, Dana, I'm sure that you have got the integrity that if you were aware of a major transgression on the part of a employer, a broadcaster that you were working for, let's say sexual harassment or something else, um, or, or somebody putting out uh, erroneous information, you would stand up and say, no, this isn't right, even though it might hurt your career because you have integrity. And uh, for me, I had no choice. When I was aware of what was going on, and I was aware because I have good interactions with the FDA and the DOD, and I've spent too much time at CDC, ACIP meetings, and I could see right through what was going on, and when uh, I was asked key questions, uh, 
during the Dark Horse podcast with Steve Kirsch um, that I, I answered truthfully about what I knew. And that set off this whole cascade. It kind of woke the whole world up. Mm. But uh, I'm, I, I have a personal, I, I feel um, that my profession, the things that I've been taught over 30 plus years of training and practice, are just being destroyed by this mad rush to uh, breach all prior bioethical norms and normal practices for product development. Mm. And it, you know, to add salt to the wound, it happens to be the technology platform that I uh, developed when I was a young man uh, in my late twenties. And so, you know, there's this. This was something that this young reporter from Atlantic Monthly mm. just couldn't seem to get it through his head. He just kept questioning and questioning and questioning me. Why are you doing this? And I said, because it's the right thing to do. Right. That didn't seem to compute for him. The assumption was that I must have some ulterior financial motive, some angle here that I'm working. Mm. Uh, and, and it wasn't good enough to say, you know, because it's the right thing to do was not enough of a justification. It's an amazing statement about the integrity of our whole society right. that we've come to this point. And, what, and the integrity that we expect of others. We're talking to Dr. Robert Malone. A couple of quick questions, because I know that you have addressed, you've talked about this before, the young men and some of the, uh, we keep hearing about myocarditis, pericarditis, uh, some of the dangers of that, that, you know, these adverse reactions that we are seeing in some, I know the studies are ongoing with young men and these vaccines. What has been your experience in, uh, with this? So I don't provide, I don't do direct clinical practice. I manage teams and assemble teams, particularly focused on clinical trials and clinical development. That's my, that's what I used to do for a living before it was 24 seven podcasts. (laughs) Um, So uh, the, the, but I would still work with a lot of docs. I did a great podcast the other day uh, with a pediatric cardiologist. That's also a PhD in vascular inflammation. I mean, Kurt Mildhound is about as qualified as you could possibly be. And uh, he ran down the list, just anecdotal reports from the last week of admissions that he's had. This cardiomyopathy, this damage to the heart that's occurring in children, predominantly in young boys, but also in young girls, is quite frequent. There's recent data out of Hong Kong just published last week in which they did a comprehensive national assessment of hospitalization for myocarditis in in the youth. The bottom line is the incidence rate of of clinical hospitalized myocarditis in Hong Kong after Pfizer jab, number two, is one in 2,700. Now, we're all focused on the myocarditis, but... um, in Bobby's testimony the other day in Louisiana, uh, there's actually a higher incidence of neuropathy in these children. It may be as high as 1 in 1,100. Okay, so these are the neural, right, right. exactly. That we're all, we're all being distracted. Oh, just look at the myocarditis. That's one of a huge laundry list of side effects. And the idea, because the truth is, Dana, our children are extremely low risk for 
for this disease unless they have some major pre-existing condition, cancer, cystic right. fibrosis, something like that. Okay, healthy kids shrug this thing off like the common cold. And uh, as Bobby put it in his testimony before Louisiana, never in the history of the world, to our knowledge, has there been a case in which children are being asked to sacrifice for the good of the aged. It has always been the other way around. Folks like me and you, I'm sure, uh, do everything we can to protect the children. And now we're asking the children to sacrifice their lives and their health in order to save the octogenarians. Right. Now, all I can say is who's making these decisions well, it turns out it's octogenarians. Um, <laughs> Those it, are the ones it, who are it, doing it. <laughs> I have, I have one more. I, I have one more quick question yeah. for you, Dr. Robert Malone, uh, the original inventor of mRNA uh, technology. And we so appreciate your time with us today. How many, how many boosters are we going to be having? What kind of world is this going to be like? We already heard from from <laughs> WHO that this could go into 2026. So, how long are we going to have this? It's endemic. Can they just admit that? <laughs> WHO and Great Britain are both saying, uh, you know, I got to steal a line from uh, my friend Mickey Willis. Uh, their timeline for this pandemic is 2026, right? Yes. Um, so good to know. Now we can all plan for that one. Um, and how many jabs, uh, you know, ad infinitum? Uh, is it going to be every two weeks? Is it going to be every two months? Uh, who knows? Uh it, here's the problem with all this. The science, the virology, the vaccinology, the immunology doesn't make sense. Mm. We're having um, very rapid decline in immune responses, and no one's asking the question why. And they are completely neglecting the two big risks that come with this, you know, give a three-year-old a hammer, everything becomes a nail approach. Mm. that Dr. Fauci and Pfizer uh, find so useful. Now, it's pointed out that this is rent-seeking behavior on the part of pharma. This is a great business model for pharma, as you know, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what's not to like? This is the same business model that those of us that have been subscribing to Microsoft are having to buy into, right? We pay our fee every right. few months uh, for them. But the problem is there's a thing called high zone tolerance, which you know about because if you're – the, the the young people that you may know that have seasonal allergies, right. they go to the rheumatologist, they get their allergy shots, okay? That's a way to generate tolerance. So this might be, this, I hate to rush you, but this, we're running out of time, but this is similar to that is what you're saying and how you how you deal with these, with this, like you would deal with like allergies. And, and it's, it's, a, it's just like what happens if you take too many flu vaccines also you can shut down the immune response. So assuming that more is better here Oof. is grossly naive. Oh, goodness. Dr. Robert Malone, always a pleasure, sir. R.W. Malone, MD, is where he is on Twitter. Thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure to talk with you, and we would love to speak with you again. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Okay. Can you steelman the arguments for the various ways Omicron might have evolved from a 2020 strain without being noticed by the medical community that has been sequencing as many variants as they find? To the naive, 
engineered seems like a possibility, but I would like to hear other natural evolutionary solutions to the problem. Yeah. So the answer is kind of a yes and no. I think we can steel man the general category. Mm -hmm. I do want to say, I think I said something last week uh, that I wanted to correct this week. I Mm. think I suggested that the spike in the Omicron variant doesn't have uh, mutations, doesn't have alterations. Mutations is actually the wrong term because those mutations are then um, either selected or not. But uh, mutation has been a confusing term here. But nonetheless, there are something like 30 alterations to the spike protein that makes um, a lot more sense that you know yeah. that's, that's much more in keeping with what you know th- that seems to be the most quickly evolving part of uh, right. the virus on yeah. the other hand actually zach would you show what we've got here is somebody has put together a time-lapse animation of the phylogeny of different strains and mm-hmm. i should just say to our audience um molecular phylogenetics has never been our bag particularly. We've been in and around it. We've used it occasionally, but it's not our specialty. But we do have a rather deep history. In fact, we learned from the best. We learned from Arnold Kluge, who was philosophically so deep um, that we really got the full strength uh, introduction into what phylogenetic systematics is and why it works the way it does. So let's just give two sentences of explanation. Phylogenetics or phylogenetic systematics is the sort of origin of species half of evolution, wherein we are trying to determine relationships between species, or in this case, variants of a virus, as opposed to the sort of sort of half of evolution where we tend to spend more of our time talking here, which is at the sort of population level. Um, how do uh, how do, excuse me, characters, or in the case of viruses, variants arise and what kinds of selective pressures allow them to actually expand in numbers in a population or or recede? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it starts right at the beginning of the sort of named pandemic. Mm -hmm. And what you have are all of the variants and their relationships as deduced by their sequence sequence differences. Mm -hmm. And what you saw is that Omicron pops up without any history of connection to the rest of the swarm, uh, as if it came about somewhere March through September of 2020. 2020? Yes. So it's- it, you know, Not 2021. Omicron? 2020? It show, no, it shows up in 2021. But the point is, it's relationship. It is as if it has been frozen in time. Uh, at a much earlier state and then shows up. Now, the thing is, this has people over in Lab Leak world fascinated Mm -hmm. because this is not the first time in history that this has happened. In fact, there's a very famous example that you may have just barely heard mentioned in the Lab Leak discussion about the uh, flu of 1977. Now, the flu of 1977, it has been concluded, this of course could be revised if some better model emerged that was more predictive or assumed less. But it has been concluded for now and with substantial evidence is actually a lab escapee. And the way we know that is that its closest relative dates back to 1949. So it vanished from the world Mm. and then the clock started again on its evolution in 1977. So that indicated this surely was in a fridge somewhere or isolated from the world. Whatever was happening with it, um, effectively time was stopped and that effectively requires a refrigerator. In an an organism or or a virus um, that does not have extraordinarily variable mutation rates, um, you you would not 
you could not possibly expect a whatever that would have been a 28 year hiatus with no changes. Right. And so the other example that we have of this, which isn't as good because we don't really have a good uh, ancestor, right? We is is uh, SARS-CoV-2 itself, mm-hmm. where we suddenly have a virus that's very, very good at doing the things a virus needs to do in order to become a human pandemic with no history of circulating in another animal where it learned those tricks, no history of circulating in some population of humans, as far as we can tell somewhere. It just, it's a genius right off the, it's like a child that was born uh, speaking three languages or something, you know? Yeah. Um, and so anyway, this has people who are paying attention to this, thinking very carefully about what could even explain this other than it having been somewhere in someone's lab during the period of time that we would have expected it to emerge and then suddenly popping back up. Um, and there are other anomalies too, like uh, things like the um, the non-synonymous to synonymous mutation rate is way off of normal. Um, it's like 25 to 1. So this is about how many alterations that have no consequence for uh, actual protein sequence you would expect for everyone that has an actual consequence. And the number appears impossible through a normal process. Now, what the Discord server has asked us to answer is the question of, well, could it be, you know, what, what might explain uh, this, this variant with this many changes uh, appearing so suddenly given a pro- a supposed background rate of so many people checking all the time for variants. Right. And so what I think we should do rather than search the world for crazy explanations is just identify one. So you've heard things like um, immunocompromised person in which much more evolution took place than normal because their immunocompromised state effectively created a gain of function environment, a serial passage environment between tissues that was extremely favorable to variants. Now, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me because, um, and in fact, I think the idea, so it was originally reported that it had been isolated from somebody with HIV, undiagnosed HIV. I believe that that has been debunked, although who even knows what debunked means in 2021. But uh, nonetheless, these kinds of explanations have been offered before. In fact, there was one quite good paper, I thought it was dead wrong, but quite good paper that argued that it could be that SARS-CoV-2 experienced extreme evolutionary change in one of the miners who got sick in Mm -hmm. Yunnan province because lungs have such a large surface area. Yeah, back in 2013. Yeah, it was a very clever argument. Again, I think it's dead wrong, but Anyway, it's at least the kind of thought you would want to have. How could you get more evolution than you expect, right? Maybe surface area is the answer. Well, and at least in that case, it it you you can track the story evolutionarily. Like the logic, each logical step is plausible, even if one one or more of them may be so unlikely as for it not to have happened. So many of these stories that are trotted out, these these explanations that are you know thrown out at at the masses and then uh, and then the guy in effectively the white lab coat steps out to say I know you can't follow this so let me just tell you the conclusion is um, actually just don't even logically hold together and you know this you, <clears throat> we've sort of <clears throat> excuse me we sort of stopped you and I have stopped largely coming on here and saying oh this thing except it doesn't make sense and this thing except it doesn't make sense because it's just coming so fast and furious like this I, I don't on the face of it, the idea that immunocompromised creates gain of function in a body, I don't 
I don't know why that would be true. I haven't, I have yet to hear the explanation for how you get from A to B. That's just a simple A to B. Spell it out. Like, what? Well, the idea, the idea to the extent that it is an idea yeah. rather than an excuse is um, in the immunocompromised body, the defenses that would ordinarily silence lots of evolutionary experiments in the body tolerates them right? Something like that. And so you have, it's like a big population in which processes that wouldn't make any headway in a small population gets a chance. But Again, do we have, I mean, so if, if that is true, yeah. you would expect that immunocompromised people would tend to be incubators of, uh, of lots of variations in colds and other coronaviruses or flus or, you know, any of the right. other things. So it makes other predictions. And frankly, right. I don't and know whether any so, of those predictions are manifest. Um, Right. The that's, other that, thing, that's how you would actually follow this up with a scientific approach. The other thing would be, okay, so let's say that this is true in yeah. the immunocompromised person and you get lots of evolution of little, you know, there are lots of foothills in the immunocompromised person that don't exist in people with a, a fully competent immune system. But then when the variant gets out into people who do have a fully competent immune system, you wouldn't expect those variations to function very right. well. Unless, if they only got a foothold because of immune suppression. Right. Yeah. So then you would need another step to the process. And the point is, this is where you start running afoul of Occam's razor. It's, you're, not just, you're not just hypothesizing an immunocompromised person, which provides a unique environment. You're, you've got another black box that you need to fill. And right. at some point, it's too many epicycles to be sustained. So I, would just, I just want to point out the other thing that we talked about last week that fits this category is the why did... Uh, why did COVID-19 collapse in Japan? Oh, yes, after they allowed doctors to prescribe ivermectin. And the answer was, oh, uh, it became mutationally aggressive and uh, lost its coherence. And it's like- It just did so well that it failed. Right, something. And so the answer is, no, you need at least one more factor. You know what one factor could do it? Ivermectin could drive a virus to make some sort of a, a deal that it couldn't sustain, but you yeah. can't do it just spontaneous- mutational idiocy. 